Starfighters with Alley Cat Blues. I don't know, that song was just in my head, man, all day. And uh, you probably never heard of these guys, and um, I recommend that you check them out. However, they're pretty much only available as like a physical copy or on YouTube or something like that. Because uh, I found out about them when I was, damn, I don't know, man, like maybe in middle school. Listening to uh, I-95 FM, I think that was out of Connecticut, and uh, yeah, just to check that out, play like hard rock radio, and uh, sometimes uh, something obscure like that would come on, and um, I remember hearing this song when I was a kid, and being like, yeah, this is like some some hard rock, you know, and uh, it's a band called Starfighters, so I went down to the old book and record store. And they happen to have this record, the self-titled Starfighters record with the song Alley Cat Blues on it. And uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's quite, quite a record, actually. That song is like exactly the kind of shit that I like from that era, late 70s, early 80s. This record came out in 1981. And I think it's kind of cool that it doesn't really exist except for the physical form, if you can locate an LP or... I mean, it was released on compact disc later, but, you know, it's like one of those relics. Um, In preparation for this episode, I actually looked up a little bit about the band, and it turns out that Steve Young played guitar for them. And Steve Young is a nephew of, you guessed it, Malcolm and Angus Young of ACDC. The band's British, and uh, I'm not sure if all you guys know that uh, the Young brothers as well as Bon Scott, were originally uh, from the UK, and they relocated to Australia. So uh, it's a little fun fact about ACDC, another one of uh, my favorite bands. And um, yeah, so if you look up Starfighters, you want to find out some information about them, they list them as a new wave of British heavy metal band. And uh, you know that would put them along with Tigers of Pantang, uh, Diamond Head, you know, those types of bands. Iron Maiden, I guess, is technically a new wave of British heavy metal band. Motorhead, Venom. So as you see, that I think that we take for granted that the moniker new wave of British heavy metal was most likely made up by people who write for magazines like Kerrang! or whatever. Because um, that's what journalists do. 
And uh, I'm going to share with you just some of my, my experiences with journalism and uh, how much of a drag it can be sometimes talking to these people. Um, as uh, some of you know, the new Tombs record, Under Sullen Skies, was released yesterday. Today's Saturday. And uh, I'm really happy. I'm really proud of the record. I think it's, uh, I feel personally, it's uh, probably one of the finer, most satisfying moments of uh, my meager career as a musician and, uh, you know, guy making extreme music or whatever. And, um, yeah, I'm really proud of it. And uh, I really appreciate all the kind words that you guys have said. And, uh, you know, get lots of messages and it's, it's, uh, it means a lot to me, uh, because every year I feel grateful that I'm still able to do this. You know I mean? I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a 25 year old guy anymore. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, it's the years go by, you start, uh, doubting yourself sometimes you start thinking about, you know, when, when it's going to be time to give this whole thing up or if it's time or whatever, or what, how am I going to approach this? You know, like, and, um, I just think that I still got a lot left in me, uh, to get out. And, uh, I just, I'm always afraid, I guess, of being one of those people whose best years are behind them. And, you know, they stuck around like way too long and, uh, they keep making records and they're losing touch, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I, I always think back to when I was in high school, when I was a senior, there were these two dudes that I played football with that were a year ahead of me. And, uh, so they, they were out of, out of high school by the time I was a senior because they graduated the year before. And, uh, there was a parking lot, which actually, uh, at my high school, they built a whole new wing over this parking lot. So it doesn't exist anymore, but there were like basketball, you know, courts and things like that. There, uh, the buses parked there, you know, some teachers, things like that. And I just remember these guys, like they were, um, 18 years old. I don't know what they, if they got jobs after high school, probably still lived with their parents. And, um, I would see them hanging around the high school, you know, I think they dated girls who are seniors and, or maybe even juniors. And I remember sitting in my uh, late classes, whatever classes I had, seventh or eighth period, looking out the window and seeing these guys playing basketball out in the parking lot and thinking, man, these guys have just stuck around like way too long. And um, they should probably move on into whatever phase is the next thing for them. And I always use that analogy whenever I feel like I've outstayed my welcome somewhere, you know, and that has to do with living in Greenpoint in Brooklyn too, where, uh, there are some great years living in Brooklyn. There was like cool times, like very, um, high points, you know, a lot of good people. There was like a, a period for sure where it was great living there. And one by one, a lot of my friends moved away. Uh, I mean, there's still definitely people who are going to live and die in New York City that are still there. Uh, and then the neighborhood started changing. A lot of the cooler spots started closing. You know, for example, Photo Play, which was like this incredible video store that uh, was in the neighborhood. And um, 
one of the, one of the best places ever, man. You go in there, they had it was all set up like like a record store actually, where they had you could flip through these flats that had the the uh, DVD box flattened out, and you would just take that to the counter, and one of the guys that worked there would would get you your uh, your stuff. You know what I mean? Your your DVD. And the owner, this dude Michael, would just kind of float around the store, talk to people if you had a question about a movie, or if if he he would make recommendations. And uh, he never rang you up, but he was like around all the time. You know, I would talk to him all like all the time I went in there, and if he was there, that is, I would talk to him about movies and stuff I'm looking forward to, and he would make recommendations based on what I told him. And it's just like that whole one-on-one tactile experience of being in the real world as opposed to the streaming online world that has been, you know, kind of exacerbated by this whole uh, pandemic that we're living through. But, uh, but yeah, even living, living in Greenpoint, when places like that closed, when, uh, you know, this really cool burrito joint, Papacitos closed, when everyone either got fired or quit from Brooklyn Label, one of the restaurants that I dug, and they sold it, and some other clown took it over, and now it's like a totally different thing. And the condos went up, and, you know, they rezoned it, and I was, like, still living there. And I started feeling like these two guys that have outlived their welcome because everything had changed. So, And that's how I feel about music, and maybe... uh, I guess I have to I assess every year, like, what, you know, okay. Is it still fun for me? Is it still good? Can I perform? Can I play hard? Am I writing material that's interesting? Am I able to relate to people? And, um, yeah, you kind of get, get to that phase of your life where you're checking in. And, um, yeah, with the release of Under Sullen Skies, I, uh, you know, you never know. I never know if anyone cares or is interested in what we're doing or all this other business and uh that's why i'm overjoyed when i see or get messages from people or i see the kind words and the appreciation that's out there and it's uh you know very meaningful to me and you know it helps get through this period right now i mean i feel weird that I'm not in a van right now driving out to play some gig somewhere across the country. That's usually what I would be doing uh, when we have a new record. But instead, I'm sitting home, you know, doing my day job and trying to uh, get ready for the holiday and all this other fun stuff, getting tested for COVID-19. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been a hard year, man, that's for sure. And um, doing a whole lot of press, which uh, it's funny. I was thinking about this when I was looking up Starfighters and how I'm like, oh, wow, they refer to them as a new wave of British heavy metal bands. And I wonder how many of the bands that were part of the new wave of British heavy metal actually uh, consider themselves to be part of the new wave of British heavy metal. Like if you asked Lemmy, you know, or Kronos or one of these guys or Paul Diano or, you know, or Steve Young from Starfighters, they probably would just say that they play rock and roll music or hard rock or whatever, you know, metal, heavy metal music. So 
like I said, I've been doing all this press and talking to these different journalists and the whole, the whole post black metal thing comes up when, when they talk about tombs and I'm like, what the fuck is post black metal? I mean, what I think of is a bunch of guys with tight pants and mustaches playing music that, uh, probably doesn't really sound like what we're doing in, in tombs. And I just wonder where that term came from and who actually consider themselves to be part of this like post black metal scene. And, uh, it's kind of a bummer, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm talking to you guys cause, um, I know there's like a, we're a small tight knit group here. And, um, aside from, uh, you know, just a handful of us, <laughs> there's probably not a whole lot of people listening to this right now. Um, but yeah, and, and I definitely am quick to point out that this term is not a real term. Like whenever they ask me about how do you feel? Usually some European guys asking me this question, you know, how do I feel about this? And I'm like, I have no feelings because it doesn't exist, you know, to me. It's like talking to a wolf and asking the wolf if he believes in good or evil. The wolf doesn't see good or evil. He just exists in this savage world. And that's how I feel. <laughs> I don't see post black metal. I just see what, I, what we are, you know, so and I don't even know what that is. I mean, I know we play metallic style music, you know, heavy metal. You know, like, sure. I, I even hesitate to call Tombs a black metal band, even though that probably is one of the closest uh, genres of music that we fit into. But there's so much more stuff that we add to the, to the mix. You know, and there's like death rock, you know, like punk music, hardcore, thrash, you know, grind, like all this stuff kind of, mixes together to make what we're doing and um you know i don't know first it was sludge that was the term that really i, I really hated you know sl first they would call tombs a sludge band or sludge whatever and i thought that was an even more useless term to refer to music uh, as sludge and i was like damn like you know you guys make a living writing you know try coming up with more creative ways of describing music instead of these stupid useless devoid of any meaning names that you guys have and not you guys but these writers sludge now it's post black metal and uh i don't know what to say about any of that stuff all i know is i don't think anyone that actually listens to the band has referred to us as that and um that's kind of cool and uh I appreciate that no one, no one that's a real fan of music even acknowledges that term. So, but anyway, yeah, it's been a lot of, um, a lot of good stuff going on as far as that goes, getting material out there, putting out records. Uh, another, another really funny, um, question that they ask is, uh, why do we put out an LP this year? And, uh, my answer is actually very simple. The answer is because we were scheduled to release this record in the fall of 2020, uh, which was uh, set up last year, this whole schedule. You know, usually record labels, by the first quarter of the year, already have, well, well before that, they're actually, uh, you know, initiating their plan. But by the end of the year, most record labels have a fairly complete schedule of releases for the year after 
So right right now, season of mist probably has the whole 2021 planned out. Or I mean, I don't, maybe not so much during this pandemic era that we're living through. But typically, by the time November or December rolls around, labels will have the following year planned out. You know, because if you think about it, you know, if there's a record that's coming out in February or March, it's probably being recorded right now. That's kind of how things work. So you have to look ahead, you know, and I, and I find it unusual that a journalist wouldn't really understand that, that sometimes they think you record the record onto like a cassette tape or something and then send it to the pressing plant, like, and then two weeks later, you release the album. I mean, I don't know if that's how these guys think sometimes, but anyway, um, you know, there, I, I'm, I'm just venting i guess because i've spent a lot of time answering the same questions over and over again and suffering through some of these conversations where they ask me things like that and i mean another thing that i do personally is i i interview people all the time and i try to try to figure out interesting questions to ask them and not just like why do you put out a record this year or this like completely stupid genre that was made up how does that apply to you? I try to talk about something more meaningful. So I guess that's why I grow impatient with these guys sometimes. Anyway, if you're um, a journalist out there, uh, I hope you don't fall into that camp uh, because I mean everything I say. So there you go. There's a couple of uh, requests from, uh, from the internet, from the internets couple things happen uh thank you matt for turning me on to the king cast which is the a stephen king horror podcast it's um these two guys i just listened to a bunch of episodes over over between yesterday and today and uh matt recommended it to me there was a a uh the episode that talks about creep show has richard stanley on it and he they discuss the creep show movie and Richard talks about his plans to make two more Lovecraftian films. And Matt, from all the stuff that he's probably heard me talk about or seen online or even listened to the Tombs uh, material, probably figured out that I was a huge H.P. Lovecraft fan. And thanks for hooking me up. I've been, you know, binging several episodes in a row. And that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. And uh, Nick asked a question about um, vocals. I mean, he uh, has listened to the new record and was uh, complimenting on my vocal performances on this record, complimenting me on my vocal performances on Under Sullen Skies. And he wants to know how I started singing and when I started singing. And uh, that's actually kind of an interesting question. And uh, so I guess uh, I'll answer that. Once again, thank you. I, any, any kind words is appreciated. And specifically, when it comes to vocals, I would say over the last five, six, seven years, I've really put a lot of intention into becoming a better vocalist because I've wanted to do more with each record. And um, this current release is uh, you know, kind of the end result of several years of trying different things and being influenced by other singers and, and that kind of thing. And 
doing doing my own research and practice and short of actually paying for lessons doing a lot of research and training independently on how to use my voice better so cheers thank you very much how i started singing well when i started playing guitar and playing in bands i never thought that i would be a vocalist ever i just figured you know that's too much like you know i didn't want to be a front man because i was very interested in playing guitar and expressing myself with that instrument and uh i just didn't think i would have the kind of gusto to be a lead singer you know like john brannan or henry rollins or or or, or be such like a a virtuoso like ronnie james dio or you know someone like, you know rob halford or something like that i don't think i had it in me to do those kinds of things and um so i just focused on playing guitar and when i started doing uh the band anodyne uh, it was me and Taz Niles who played drums in La Gratona and uh, Eye for an Eye. And, you know, he's done a whole other bunch of other other bands since then, too. And uh, he and I started playing together in the practice space. And um, a good friend, Chris, put, put us in touch, actually. He was like, yeah, you, you guys should know each other because you're into the kind of the same stuff. You're coming from the same place. And uh, you should start playing together. So, you know, just start, we just went down to the space, started jamming, started making noise. Taz had like a very free form idea what he wanted to do with the band, or he didn't even really want it to be a band. He wanted it just to be a series of jams and maybe not play live or, you know. And um, during that phase of my life, I was like, you know, pretty, uh, been going through some hard times on a personal level so i just was i just needed something to do with my time at night you know i was working at a warehouse during the day and uh you know that kept me occupied and you know and then when the whistle blew at five i needed something to do some place to put my time and energy so to show up at the practice space every night was uh was a good thing for me and uh so that's what i ended up doing Slowly, the band evolved, and I was like, yeah, we should, you know, maybe get, like, a, someone to do vocals. And in my mind, I, I wanted to I wanted to be like Greg Ginn or something like that, like, doing this, you know, crazy chaotic solos and playing, you know, just focusing on playing and not thinking about singing. In my mind, I wanted to get some, you know, some guy like, like Rollins or, you know, or John Brannon or, or someone like that, or like a David Yao type of dude to be the singer in the band, you know, or Tim Singer, or, you know, one of, one of these guys, you know? So, um, Taz ended up recommend or called his friend at the time. Well, he's my friend too, you know, but I didn't really know him until he walked into the practice space that night. Uh, our friend, Al Nayor, who used to play in Spore, which is how I knew him. I knew him from the from being in Spore, which is like a pretty fine band from from the early '90s in Boston. And since then, or at the time, he started doing this band called Twenty Seven, which is uh, you know like a quiet kind of indie rock thing. But I knew that Al was into noise and playing loud and all this other stuff. So 
and you know into like experimental kind of music and that was kind of like where we were coming from it back then it was like this experimental you know uh process of weeding out black flag throbbing gristle kind of thing you know we were trying to just make evil sounding noisy shit so that's what it started out as so l showed up he had all these gadgets with him which was cool like you know noisemakers he had his homemade microphone that he was singing through and i thought that was pretty cool he was doing vocals vocals sounded cool and uh we made a demo and while we were in the studio l encouraged me to sing on one of the songs like a little bit you know like some backups and I was like, oh, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And I guess that was the beginning of where I started entertaining the thought of being a vocalist. You know, it was like in those early, early days of 1996 when we were in the practice space and in the studio and, you know, I had no real aspirations for being like a lead vocalist or anything. As time went by, um, you know, the band changed a little bit. And uh, Al ended up leaving and focusing more of his energy on doing 27. And uh, I just took over singing. <laughs> it was just like like that. I remember, uh, you know, I just started singing. There was a period of time where we had, we had a second guitar player. And uh, the, he was my roommate, Dean Baltolonis. And uh, he and I have a checkered past. And um, this guy, like, it was, was, uh, was trouble. Let's put it this way. And that's why I'm using his full name because I don't care if he hears this or finds out or whatever. Um, so Dean was uh, filling in as, like, a second guitar player. He was also uh, auditioning to play in the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, which was, like, a very big band at the time. I guess they still are. And he did a couple of shows with us. He's a, yeah, by, as much as, as a jackass as I think he is as a person, I think he's an incredibly talented musician. So he was able to do whatever. But I remember we, we had a bunch of gigs lined up in Canada and in uh, like upstate New York. Like um, Plattsburgh was, was where we were playing. So from Boston, we all lived in Boston at the time. I, um, we had to get up like super, super early in the morning and leave. Cause we actually had two shows. We had like a afternoon show and then there was an evening show and then we were playing in Canada. And then, you know, that's kind of, we, we used to do stuff like that all the time. We would play in the afternoon and play at night. Even some of the early tombs, uh, tours, you know, we were, for example, we played an afternoon show at ABC No Rio one day, and then we drove down to Philly and play a show. And uh, and then there was like a, sh actually it was it was pretty crazy. It was like two days and like like three shows and like twelve hours or something like that. So um, you know, I had a I, yeah, I, I told Dean I'm gonna come and pick you up at like five or whatever five thirty. So we went to the uh, practice space or whatever. Uh, or, and then we oh, actually, no, I went to pick him up first. No answer. And I'm like, what the fuck, man? So hit the doorbell, try calling, you know, no answer. You know, I had to go to a pay phone actually to make the phone call. That's how long ago this was. 
And I'm like, oh shit, so what do I do? So that's how anodyne became a three piece. <laughs> we just, I mean, fuck man. Like I'd written those songs. I knew how to play them. You know, I, I was singing all these songs and I, it was almost like you get pushed out into the deep end of the pool. Uh, Cause like the, the whole thing was like, all right, well we have a second guitar player. So if I'm not, if not as tight as I should be on guitar, you know, we got this other guy. So that was kind of like my uh, trial by fire of singing and playing guitar as a, in a three-piece band. So, so yeah, that was, um, you know, then that, that band just did its thing. You know, I, I got more and more comfortable, like, screaming and doing all this stuff and developed. I, I, I mean, I got to be honest with you guys. I had no idea how to actually sing or use my voice the right way or any of that stuff throughout the entire career of anodyne i was just making up as i making it up as i went along and um you know then after that we we did versoma with with jamie my buddy jamie gets and uh that that was a cool band very short-lived we did i think 15 shows or something like that and released an album and um for the first time in my life though there was like this expectation that the band would do something you know what I mean? Where like, yeah, it's got, you know, meet these guys from these bands and, you know, uh, this one dude from, you know, Hope Conspiracy and, you know, me and Jamie and uh, Robotic Empire wanted to put out a record just based on some demos or I don't even, I don't even know if we act actually even if, if Andy even really knew what we sounded like, maybe just some, he saw us live or I don't, I don't even remember how that happened. Jamie took that, took care of that. And, um, I sang in that band. Gets at the time, he is was way further along with his uh, melodic singing prowess than I was. So he was actually singing melodies and you know doing stuff with his voice that uh, that I, I hadn't ever really attempted to do. You know, I was still very much in like the screaming, you know, vocal style of Anodyne. And, but still trying to reach a little bit, I guess, into trying to develop like a bag of tricks, you know, like, you know what I mean? And, um, during the, during the beginning of that band, that was actually one of the bands where we first started doing demos because of the vocals. And, uh, you know, I think during that period is when I started thinking about rehearsing in a different way. And I mean, I wasn't really actively doing any of this stuff at the time. But it was crossing my mind that, yeah, you know, if you make a demo, you can practice stuff with your voice and, and try different things out. And prior to that, it was all just go, you know, hit play and go. Like no real pre-production or any of that kind of stuff. But also just FYI, like when Anodyne was first starting out, like the only pre-production that we could have done was to have like one of these stereo boom boxes with a cassette tape in it. And that was really like it. That was, I remember when I started doing the band, I was with Taz and I was like, you know what, man, it'd be cool if we were able to record some of this stuff. So I drove out to the Arsenal Mall in Water, Watertown and I went to, a, I don't even know what, I think it was Caldors or something like that. And I went through and I found just like this, the cheapest 
boombox that I could find that had a cassette deck in it that had a play and record thing. And I brought that to the practice space and we recorded hours and hours and hours of jams and just rough ideas. But it's not like today where everyone's got Pro Tools, you know, or, or you know, Ableton or Logic or uh, whatever people use, Bandcamp, any of that stuff. And uh, their phones, you know, none of that stuff existed back then. And, uh, but when, when I was doing Versoma, that's when I had, I, I was getting more into recording, like on my own. And I had a Pro Tools set up and I was able to bring stuff to the practice space and multi-track things and try out different guitar layers and try different things in my voice. But it was the very, very, very beginning of all that kind of stuff. And I hadn't really understood where I wanted to go with anything. But I guess like I bring up Versoma because that is kind of the bridge, you know, that was like a good experience for me to do uh, because even though I wasn't really getting it, I saw that there was at least potential to do some interesting stuff with my voice. And, um, you know, that, that band was around. We did it, you know, ran its course. We played a show uh, at this venue in um, New York City uh, that doesn't, it's closed now. I forgot the name of the venue, but it was a short-lived, like, rock music venue uh, off of, like, Houston Street. And uh, it was during that time, during the time when New York was cool, when it was like you you had places to see live music and stuff like that. And aside from St. Vitus, like Vitus is, is the jam. That's like, without St. Vitus, I think that they're the, that's like the, one of the greatest clubs in New York City. You know, it's, that's, that's right up there with like CBs, you know, in my opinion. You know, and there was some other great places, like the Acheron was awesome, uh, Never really played there as much as I would have liked to, but um, it was still a cool spot. And then there's like mad lofts and stuff out in Bushwick. And I don't even know if, I don't know how many of those places were doing shows uh, up until now. But I know that there was a really big scene for that. But anyway, I'm getting off topic. So you know, the last Versoma show was was uh, you know, some venue that doesn't exist anymore. And um, yeah. I don't know, there was a there was some conflicts there, not between Jamie and I, but uh, me and the bass player in that band. Like he, in the middle of a song, he like jumped off stage and grabbed a beer, and I was like, I kind of braced him up after the set. I was like, "What the fuck you think you're doing?" Yeah, not not the most professional move, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, so that band did its thing, and then immediately I started doing tombs after that, and kind of went into it started the band with no expectation because there was all this internal i mean it, it ultimately versoma didn't amount to very much just one record every now and then people say oh i love that record and i'm like eh, you know great but it's not my finest uh piece out there in my opinion it's something that i'm like i said it's like uh it's like weird little thing that I did and, and it's cool, but the whole thing wasn't very, it wasn't fully manifested, I guess. And that's why I'm always reluctant to acknowledge that record as anything, but just like an experiment, I guess. Um, but yeah, like there was this weird expectation that that band was going to become something. 
And I guess as a result of that, when I started doing tombs, I had no expectations. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to make music I like. I'm just going to use the band as a a palette to throw ideas on, to work out stuff, to just be creative, not put limits on myself, you know, and not try to write songs that people would necessarily like, uh, to fail at certain things, to, you know, try out ideas and, you know, just kind of with no regard, I guess. And that's kind of like what the first early material is. I mean, I don't know if any, how many of you out there have actually heard some of the early tomb stuff, but it is very much, it's very different than what the band sounds like now. Um, it is, well, you know, all, in all honesty, half of that material I had actually written for uh, Versoma. So, on, there's that very first Tombs EP that, that came out between my old label, Black Box Recordings, and Level Plane, who released the, the last Anodyne record. Uh, and half of that record was written as like for, with Versoma in mind. So I had these songs and I just kind of like retooled them to be Tombs material. On that first EP is when. I started thinking about myself more as a vocalist as opposed to a guy just screaming words into a microphone and playing chaotic guitar riffs. And uh, yeah, I just think that there was more intention and kind of slowed things down a little bit, thought about songwriting, thought more about, um, you know, melody, uh, not just being you know balls out extreme all the time and i think that's uh pretty much how things started out and that's that's the beginning i guess of where i am now and over the years i uh started having more confidence in what i was able to do and you know confidence i use that word only because i am confident that i put the hours that were required to accomplish the goal into it and I think that's what real confidence is, you know, to walk around and just be like, yeah, I can do all this shit, you know, and not put the work in is uh, foolhardy in my, uh, you know, in my opinion. And um, to be so cocksure of your uh, abilities without actually putting the required amount of effort into it is foolhardy. So, yeah, that's um. That's why I have some. That's why I have some confidence right now because I know that I put the time into it, and um, I have always been a huge admirer of David Bowie, um, Iggy Pop, Peter Murphy from Bauhaus, Carl McCoy from Fields of the Nephilim, Ian Curtis of Joy Division always been huge admirers of what those guys did with their voice and uh that's been the slow metamorphosis i guess of my clean less extreme version of what the vocals and tombs are all about is like kind of a uh mel a melding of all those things and uh yeah i don't know it's just uh it keeps me on my toes I, I enjoy mixing all this stuff together and 
some of my favorite bands are bands that do exactly that. I mean, think about Celtic Frost and Tom Warrior and think about Triptychon. You know, it's, I always go back to those, those, that, those particular bands because I see that as being like a huge inspiration for what, uh, what Tombs does. Because there's a metal thing going on, but there's also this kind of gothic thing going on. Oh, and I also, I love, how could I forget Michael, Michael Giraffe from The Swans? I mean, if you want to talk about a total being totally ripping someone off, I feel like I would totally rip off Michael Giraffe. I think that uh, <laughs> that's like you can go back and listen to Children of God and uh, soundtracks for the blind and check out his voice and the way he uses his voice. And I think that you can listen to Under Sullen Skies and you'll see a lot of similarities, at least to what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm not I'm not so, um, you know, I don't have the, the hubris to say that I've we've approached any level of intensity that that band has approached uh but i'm just saying that if you want to really get in there and figure out who i rip off and you know where it all comes from you can listen to those two records yeah and once again swans are another band where it's like they started out one place they went someplace else in the middle and then they went into a different realm towards the end and i guess that's sort of what i want to um accomplished with tombs you know similar to uh you know swans swans have had i don't know how many different members in and out of the band and uh also tying it back to talking to journalists that's the always that's another question that fucking bugs me is like the lineups and all this stuff i'm like i'm like motherfucker like you got did you guys interview napalm death you know or something like that that band has had you know there's no original members left it's like you know I mean, I, yeah, I love Barney and I love Shane Embury, but they've had so many different people in and out of that band. You know, they've they've changed singers. They can make three bands out of out of Napalm Death. You know, the Swans. There's like 17 different bands that have come from all the guys that were in that band. So why don't you bug those guys about lineups and stuff? You know, it's like it makes it sound like I'm the Tombs is the first band that's ever had a diff, different members in it, and I'm like. Yeah, it's I don't know. it. It's just something that bothers me because only because the questions are the same with every single person that I talk to. And maybe what they should do is I should send them this podcast and be like, "Look, before you guys write up your interview questions, listen to this uh, forty-five minute uh, piece, and then hopefully some of your questions will be answered. And then we can go on and talk about real things, which is what I would rather do." Anyway, thanks for hanging in there. Appreciate it. Uh, everyone, be smart over the holidays and take care of yourselves. And, uh, you know, I, I just, just be safe. And hopefully in 2021, we'll be out on the road again, at least in some capacity. And I'll be able to get out there and hopefully meet up with some of you guys. And, uh, yeah, by the way, keep the keep the questions coming, man. I enjoy that. It's like... I, you know, I, I don't mind answering questions. If people have anything they want to know, for sure, man. It makes it, it makes for an interesting time. So anyway, have a good evening, everyone. Enjoy the holidays, and I'll talk to you soon. I'm alone. Oh, boy.
Oh, 